having it worked we're here this is geek gab with your host Dornall and me daddy warpig we are back geek gab for saturday october 29th 2022 Dornall, how was your week hey man my week's been good uh things are working at the house in my forever remodel and we are finally into my favorite season deep deep october where it's nice and cool a little bit of rainy and you kind of want to stay inside and sip tea and play board games and watch scary movies i am loving life you do realize that technically october isn't a season this is my favorite part of my favorite season. Oh, okay. I but it's, it should be a season of its own now. Deep October. Oh, yeah, that's not even all of October. That's just like half of October. <laughs> Dude, you want 24 seasons. That's. I could handle 24 seasons. That would be awesome to see people try to cope with. <laughs> Oh, come up with like 12 names for summer. Oh, or nine names for summer. I don't know. I'm not good at doing math right now. I am sleep deprived. No, that's not quite true. I had good sleep yesterday and I had uh, marginally good sleep today. So that makes those two days stand out in the last, I want to say, eight years. Um, that was the best two days for sleep in the last eight years. Wow. So, yeah, I'm rising See, high. You, you're, oh. you're not doing so great. I was going to ask how your week was. It sounds like it's been long. No, I just told you I have two, you know, the best days of sleep I had in eight years. That's good. <laughs> oh, I somehow interpreted that as the opposite. My brain's also not working today. <laughs> if we hadn't had real technical difficulties, I think that we, by the way, folks, we had real technical difficulties. Been a while. Oh, yeah, just uh, just trouble starting the stream network difficulties. Nothing big, but uh, we're here now. Uh, one of the things that I like most about this season is the scary movies because i'm not really a horror movie fan but every once in a while i like to indulge around the season and uh the past couple of years i've been digging into the classics and so i am happy to talk about a couple of classics with you today um i have a feeling i watched a horror movie this week and i have a feeling it was a horror movie i really liked but I didn't write it down anywhere, so I don't remember it. Couldn't have been that good. Which is, oh yeah, sleep-deprived brain. It could have been great, and I still wouldn't have remembered it. <laughs> but I, the other two movies I watched were, uh, I had written them down before, written them down beforehand or afterwards, so I remembered both of them, and neither of them were horror movies. Uh but both of them were really good. Um, 
And one of them were a movie people kept on telling me to watch for like the last, definitely specifically for the last month and a half, but in a general sense for the last like several, several years. And now that I've watched it, I can definitely see why people uh, love this movie because I became an instant fan just by watching it. Um, so we're also going to talk about that. But I did have one quick update uh, and What's an up? apology. When I said last week that I had seen the entirety of House of uh, the Dragon, uh, and then I'd seen the you know, finale and they hadn't even started the war, I was wrong. Uh, I had, in point of fact, not seen the f finale because the finale had... Uh, not gone on yet. So I saw the finale this week. And I want to let you know that they actually started the war in the finale. You know, people getting killed and the war came and and uh, the daughter of one of the two queens who's claiming the, th or the son of one of the two queens that's claiming the throne got all dead. Uh, and so, you know, there was big drama and, and conferences of war and people lining up on either side. And, and so you would think, uh, you know, all these things are, you know, there's a combination of dragon fighting and people discussing strategy and contacting their bannermen and saying, we're going to hold you to your vow to support me and, and scheming and prizes and, you know, bribes being sent out to people and promises of marriage and all that. So now with all of this stuff going on in this final episode to frame the whole season, working as a climax to the entire season, what it's been built up, every episode has been pointing to, I can confidently and with absolutely no reservations tell you that it has not changed my opinion of this show in the slightest. It is garbage. It is still garbage. Beginning to end. There is nothing in House of the Dragon that you can't get other places done better, free of the uh, repellent trash that this show is filled with. And you know I don't say that easily. Um, I didn't even say that about the original Game of Thrones. So you can see how far a show has to push me for me to say, no, this is literally repellent trash. There is so much just, oh, nastiness in the, I've watched three seasons of The Boys and I wasn't, I felt this was worse. It, it drove me worse than the boys. Um, although the boys is pretty bad and in some ways was worse than this. Got to give it its due. But this didn't have anything even to compensate for. It. There was nothing in this show to compensate for it except maybe the performance of the guy who was the king in one episode. And that's not enough to watch this show. So I just wanted to let you know, folks, I was wrong last week. I was mistaken, but I did watch the finale, and I want to tell you that. I want to come clean, and it absolutely did not change my mind about the show. It was garbage. Still garbage.
That's a shame. And not a surprise. Um, I. That's it. I'm done. Please. You're, you you were on your way to something sublime. You were something on your way to sublime. Something good. Something and, good? And I, no. I'm going to start with the trash, too. Oh. I'm going to start with utter trash because we let's get this out of the way, you know, and then because uh, we already started the show on a good note. So and let's get this out of the way so we can end up because uh, I also decided to go back to the past and watch House of a Thousand Corpses, the Rob Zombie oh. uh, so-called horror movie. And uh, but about that. after seeing that and. Uh, last year I saw the Halloween remake. I'm not exposing myself to anything ever produced by Rob Zombie again. Um, it may not have been incompetently made in the way that Birdemic was incompetently written and made, but uh, it is a pointless, dreadful, uh, boring, unentertaining slop of a movie. Um, the it's all aesthetic and nothing interesting or scary at all. So, House of a Thousand Corpses, absolute trash. And I think he knows it. Um, I don't even want to get any more into it. Um, Mo, my favorite thing to say, irredeemable trash, that's what it is. Uh, that said... Ice. House of Dragon is better than House of a Thousand Corpses. Mm, I I haven't seen them both, so I couldn't say. But the thing that makes House of a Thousand Corpses badger is twofold. First of all, there's nothing interesting or scary about it. It's a lot of and then with pointless gore. So Rob Zombie, his whole persona, his entertainer persona, embodies that whole uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll, uh, slasher movie aesthetic. And that's all it is. It's just, you know, wacky costumes and senseless, pointless characters and stupid violence. Um and it uh, it sort of apes the Texas Chainsaw Massacre without any of the style or the tension or the understanding fear. it. Or, yeah, it do doesn't understand it. It's just, okay, this scene is... Uh, I have seen House of a Thousand Corpses. Um, and it is... See, whenever you go silent like that, I wonder if I'm disconnected. Nope. <laughs> okay. You're scaring me there. I'm like, am I just talking to myself? Am I talking to the boy? I have seen House of a Thousand Corpses, but I watched it on Fast Forward. I... <laughs> that is the only way you could possibly enjoy that movie. <laughs> um, so me, and this was, you know, years and years and years ago. So maybe it was before I had grown my, my uh, thick skin against, you know, the stuff that I'm watching nowadays. But there are two things you should know. One, the show is not, it doesn't have a plot. It doesn't have a story. And in order to have a real horror movie, you literally have to have stories and characters that the audience is connected with, that they 
care about, um, at least on, on some minimal level. You have to connect with them on a human level. Now, you can do that just through the actors delivering good performances. Um, and, and by cheating your, uh, cheating your brain, if you have characters or, or actors who portray fear in a good way, you will fear that, feel that fear vicariously. Um, and I did a review of a movie for uh, the website I was writing for like five years ago where uh, I talked about a really good horror movie that did that. I can't remember the movie. I just barely remember writing the piece. Um, in fact, I thought it was a review on this show until I remembered. No, it was actually a, actually a blog post. But seeing on their faces that fear can trick your nervous system into feeling that fear because that's how human minds and, and stuff work. So good performances can bring that out. They can draw out that empathy you have for other people. And our culture has gone kind of sideways, so we do the same thing for, like, animals now. Oh, that poor little dog got murdered. It's, it's easier for us to feel empathy for animals than it is to feel empathy for humans nowadays, which is really perverse, but it's the truth. Um, but you can see how that draws out empathy of us. And that puts us in the mind to feel, uh, feel vicarious pain, to feel vicarious uh, horror, to feel vicarious fear, um, to feel even, uh, you know, a, a link to the people that are um, in the movie. But House of a Thousand Corpses, the main characters are the murderers. Not only is there no plot, these are just disconnected scenes of gore and not even gore, just weirdness. Like at one time, the blonde chick just gets partially nude and rolls around with a, on a couch with a skeleton. It's pointless. It's just Rob Zombie showing off how hot his wife is. It, yeah, it, it it means it means nothing. It it literally does nothing. It does it's not scary. It's just there. Um, and then they have these weird color shots where the screen goes yellow and black at times. Um, no, remember I'm trying to remember this from like eight years ago. Nine years they, ago. They do a lot of they do a lot of transitions by way of montage. And those montages are colored very strangely. It's like aping some sort of psychedelic trip or something. And I actually yeah. have a theory on why that is, but but go ahead. Um so the movie is not constructed to have plot meaning. It's not constructed to have any message uh, or, or coherency to it. And the protagonists of the movie, such as one could draw that out from such a, a random assemblage of 
moon images are the bad guys. And you're going to say, well, no, how can you really tell? I can really tell because the next movie he made is called The Devil's Own. Rejects. And the three main characters in The Devil's Own are the three bad guys from House of a Thousand Corpses. It's the blonde chick and uh, the gentleman who just died. Um, I wish I could remember his name right now, but I can't. Um, he had such a beautiful face for horror. He played a clown, an evil clown in a movie, and he's played so many other... Uh, oh, the the um, the world's tallest man? The, the tall guy? No, 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 no. Uh, the... Oh... He has like kind of a big nose and acne scars and uh, I can't remember his name now. I'm sorry. Anyways, The, the Devil's Rejects um, is the next movie he made. And the three heroes in it are the three, you know, villains from this movie. Um, so those are the key people he was fast. Rob Zombie was fascinated with. Those are the people he wanted to, you know the characters he wanted to develop more. And during the next movie, The Devil's Rejects, they just go around and kill people. From what I know of the movie, I have not watched it. Um, like, like John, I just said no. Thank you. So, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with John's review. Um, and even though I'm pulling out the you know, pulling out bits of memory from aeons ago, it's, uh, it's, uh, there's nothing there, there. It's entirely, you know, empty aesthetic. It's, it's a waste of time. It, it, it is, if you've ever seen pictures of the sixties, when people were taking acid, they would have these big, light shows on the wall that were just flower patterns of light that would rotate almost like a kaleidoscope. Um, and that was just to set off the uh, sensations of the acid because that would activate the acid and send you on the trip. Um, it interacted with the changes that the acid was making in your sensorium. This movie is like that, except with a bunch of skeletons and other stuff. If you dropped acid and watched this movie, you're guaranteed to have the worst trip of your life. It would probably uh, damage you so bad it would send you into, a, uh, into an institution. Um, but it is just a bunch of disconnected images. Uh, and acid trip lighting. But John had a theory about that. Yeah, the acid trip lighting, I noticed that some, or the transitional montages, uh, first of all, most of them were pointless, but some of them had very graphic imagery. And I am certain that if, uh, if you asked him, he would admit that he had to do it to avoid an NC-17 rating. Yeah. Uh, and an NC-17 rating is absolutely a kiss of death for any movie. You basically can't show it anywhere. Uh, because there, most of the nudity in House of a Thousand Corpses, and there's only a little, but there's a lot of suggestive 
uh, dancing. Most of the nudity, nudity is in uh, the those montages, and there's an extremely disturbing section where someone's lifting another character's skin off and, and putting it on as a mask. Um, something that it's that's been done in other movies, but as soon as I saw that scene, I started to suspect that, that he had to use the the weird washed out and psychedelic coloring for those scenes. Just a theory, okay. but it smells true. I really thought you were going to come up with some kind of um, like in movie event related theory, but you know now I feel ashamed because that would be. Impossible. There is absolutely no way this movie could be coherent enough to support that. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Uh, so that was absolute trash. But then I uh, uh, I cleansed my palate with an ancient classic, um, a movie 100 years old now, uh, the original Nosferatu. Um, I'm going to say just how lucky we are that this thing survived. Yeah, this is a uh, now I saw a I saw a version of this a long time ago. I want to say twenty five years ago. I I, um, I think I was in high school where I saw a version of of this film that was very cut up, but it had a lot of the famous scenes. Um, the film does just doesn't last this long. Uh, there's lots of restoration projects to try to keep some of these silent films alive. And for a lot of old films like this, the original prints were destroyed ages ago, sometimes deliberately, just like, yeah, who cares, you know? Um, Nosferatu, the version that I watched, it's available for streaming now, is actually a restoration from 2005. They found additional footage from, I think, a, an old French archive or something, and they restored even more of the film. Um, which we are very fortunate to have. I think on the other hand, though, <laughs> I think on the other hand, we didn't need the extra footage. <laughs> Does um, it not add much to the movie? It adds, it adds running time to the movie. Uh, it's, it, you know, it's, it's based on Bram Stoker's Dracula. So if you're familiar with that, you know the story. Uh, and it's very slow and moody. And... Uh, there's lots of, you know, there's lots of establishing characters and setup, and the best, most creepiest parts are all the scenes with the vampire in it, you know, the way, and the actor's name is Max Shrek, and I tell you what, you couldn't ask for a better stage name for a guy who plays vampires on screen, uh, Shrek being the German word for terror, uh, so if if you ever... If you ever hear about a horror movie made by a guy named Maximum Terror, that's me stealing that uh, <laughs> shtick. <clears throat> uh, so anyway, Max Shrek playing the title character, the Nosferatu. Um, his character's name is Count Orlock. Uh, the The movie is a little slow in plotting because it does follow the book where a real estate um, agent in uh, uh modern city, modern for 1890 something, right? The modern city uh, goes to Transylvania to this old moneyed count who wants to buy some property in town. And uh, and so there's a lot of like travel time and he gets there. And, and then of course, this is where it turns into a horror film, right? The, 
the locals when they find out, oh yeah i'm going to count orlock's castle the locals are they're really scared hey you know you can't go at night there are werewolves but you know on the road oh okay right and then he goes there in the morning and and the even the um carriage he hires to take him up to the castle you know they won't go as they'll only go as far as the bridge on, in, onto the grounds they said nope we're we're done the horses are scared we can't we can't cross you're on your own right um it, so it's it's a really creepy creepy vampire movie uh, it, it is a little slow and uh in, in a lot of places but it follows the story and sort of the effects and this is where you sort of have to um you have to give the filmmakers a lot of credit because this being a hundred year old film they're using brand new techniques or inventing techniques for cinema and so uh, they've got this great effect uh, where you've probably seen it you know people love to copy it for commercials and stuff count orlock uh standing up from his coffin without any without actually pushing up he just sort of rises up right everybody's copied that for the past hundred years uh, um, really creepy stuff like that i just saw a trailer for a movie called upgrade uh it's a cyberpunk movie uh and they copied that <laughs> the guy gets uh hooked up with some cyberware uh, top secret. Nobody knows he has it, and he uh, somebody's attacking him, and uh, he turns on his cyberware and he rises up off the ground just like Count Orlock. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it, it's it, it classic scenes, really creepy scenes. Uh, the the best scene, the other most famous scene is the shadow of the vampire creeping along the wall. Where this poor guy in in the in the English version, it's Jonathan Harker, the guy who goes and visits the count at the beginning. The you know the the long creepy shadows along the wall. I mean, it's basically like the hand puppets you do you know you did against the wall with lights when you were a kid, right? Uh, but it's 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 got this chilling effect with the orchestral soundtrack, you know, and the look of terror on, you know, on Harker's face. Um, and then later in the film, the, when the, you know, at the end of the film, when Orlock attacks the maiden, uh, right. You know, in the story, the maiden gives herself up to, um, you know, ensure that the vampire is destroyed. You know, they do the same thing where the shadow creeps along her bosom and it grabs her heart you know, and she she passes out as the shadow grips her heart. Really cool, really creepy effects. Absolute classic uh, vampire movie. Um, but it's a it's a silent movie, and it's meant to build up the dread over the course of the movie. Uh, so uh, it it takes a bit of patience. Uh, but uh, absolute classic, really enjoyable. Have you seen it yourself? I had not seen Nosferatu. I I highly recommend it. Nor have I seen the Willem Dafoe movie um, about the supposed making of Nosferatu, where they re found a real vampire to play the vampire in the movie. <laughs> 
I have heard that's good too. So that's on my maybe someday, you know, far distant in the future wish list. We'll do it. Uh, let's see. Uh, I could talk about the other one that I saw. Another classic, classic horror. Uh, there's not much else to say about Nosferatu, but see it. Uh, classic, classic horror. Have you ever seen uh, Nightmare on Elm Street? No, but I read the novel. There's a novel? Well, novelization. <laughs> uh, once again, uh, back to the 80s, back to the classics. And this is this is where... Uh, this is what I'm talking about right here. This is one I remember from my childhood. Uh, everybody knows the name and the face of the villain. Uh, Fred Krueger, the guy with the claw. And um, the deal is, is that he's picked this, you know, group of people on Elm Street in this, you know, quiet suburban town somewhere in regular old America that doesn't exist anymore. And uh, he kills them while they sleep in their dreams. Uh, so it's got really creepy dream. It's basically a series of dream sequences. Um, and, you know, what the kids try to do when they get out of those dream sequences. Um, it's got fun gore. Like it, when I was a child, I remember being it, it being extremely scary. And it is. But uh, it's not cheesy gory it's not a lot of body parts right it's mostly like buckets of blood and you know corpse maggots and and whatever but uh it's a oh man it's expertly crafted by wes craven i think this was his breakout uh film as a it is a fun and scary because it is such a tense film and uh, it will seamlessly switch from reality to the dream world with, and it's not being totally unfair to the audience because it'll, the scene will switch. There'll be a cut, but he doesn't change the lighting or anything. This, the dream scenes are lit the same way as regular scenes. So it isn't until something incongruous or absurd or anachronistic happens that you realize, oh no, the character just fell asleep in between these scenes. Um, so you follow these, these teenagers as they try to survive. They try to figure out what is happening to them. Um, and uh, it follows a, a, bit of a slasher format uh, while at the same time you know the main character is trying to figure out how to stop it from happening i don't want to say any more about it because uh you know there, there's not much more to the plot uh that is really important but i think in terms of uh horror movies it totally stands the test of time if you like uh, creepy action and it's got it's got it like it's got corny um you know corny corpse humor you know freddy krueger cuts himself and maggots come out uh it's got 
uh, how do I put it? Uh, it's got buckets of blood, a la Evil Dead 2. It's got um, cheesy one-liners and jokes, believe it or not. Uh, but it's also terrifying. Um, it's one of the one of the best uh, of its kind ever made. See, and I, uh, uh, and it's got an, um, you know one of the most iconic villains of all time. Right up there with Jason and Michael, Freddy Krueger is. Yep. Uh, I actually own all five of the Nightmare on Elm Street core movies. Um, the six was the new Nightmare, which sort of rebooted things in a different direction. And uh, then there was Freddy versus Jason and, and those. And I'm not disparaging them. I'm not saying they're bad movies, but you know, the original movies were those five. Uh, and I'm sure there are pur purists who say things like, oh, but number three doesn't really count because of this. So I only watch one, two, and five, whatever. Um, I haven't seen any of them. I read the books for uh, a lot of them. I, uh, what I was planning on doing uh, next week was maybe watching all five. <laughs> um, because it's been a long time and I've wanted to see them for a long time. I don't know that I will be able to, but that's, uh, that's on my list of things I want to do. I want to watch all the, uh, all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. I just think that would be great. Because... Uh, not that this is anything like them, but one of my favorite movies is Inception. And also, um, is it Dream Quest? Uh, also from the uh, 80s um, with Dennis Quaid. Um, I am, I just, I, I really like those uh, movies where the theme of people going into dreams and controlling them and, and altering them and stuff um, or trying to influence them. Uh, uh, I really find that it's just an enjoyable element to movies. It's one of the things I really, really like. Um, so yeah, I'm uh I'm looking forward to to doing that if I if I have the time uh, next week. So it's a great idea. Um, so I, if I do, saying, go ahead. If I do, I'm going to run through those next week. Sure. At the very least, you can say, "Hey, you know, you you're wasting your time or not after X, Y, or Z installment." That would be really valuable. Because, you know, before we move on from horror, uh, I think a lot of these are classics for a reason. Um, we sort of, when they started making sequel after sequel after sequel, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, you know, people like me and my family, we just sort of, we just ignored it. We poo-pooed it. Like, oh, it's just, it's another one of those garbage slashers. But when you go back 
you know, the original Halloween is a good film. A Nightmare on Elm Street is a good film. Yeah, it's schlocky, but it's a good film. It's fun. Like, it's fun in the way that horror is supposed to be. Um, so I think yeah. I think it's great. Uh, these are genuinely good films. Horror uh, isn't supposed to be a miserable genre. You're not supposed to feel like crap after you walk away. Um, it's supposed to be, and while you're experiencing it, it's supposed to be unnerving and supposed to be, you know, scary or disgusting or, you know, it's supposed to play with somewhat negative human emotions, but in a way that you're being entertained at the same time. Um, if you don't like it, if you're not enjoying it, then it's not doing its job. Um, and I, I know that a lot of people kind of distrust horror or distrust Halloween because it is macabre. Um, and they feel like, you know, things shouldn't be macabre. But my opinion is horror wouldn't be as popular as it is and it wouldn't have stuck around as long and people wouldn't keep on celebrating Halloween if there wasn't something valuable about it, if it wasn't fulfilling some need. Um, and I felt that for a long time and that started me on a path of trying to figure out what it was fulfilling. I mean, what need was it fulfilling? Um, and it's a safe way to explore these darker things that happen in our lives. It's a safe way to explore them so that when we do happen, we're prepared. It's the same thing. Play is good and fun and it lifts burdens off your shoulder. But also play allows you to explore things in a safe environment, right? So Halloween allows you to explore things like death, explore things like sickness, explore things like, you know, whatever. Explore things like darkness and the macabre and uh, deal with things like monsters or the supernatural or whatever in, in safe circumstances where there are is no real danger. So that if you ever find yourself in danger um, or someone close to you dies or whatever, you have somewhat prepared yourself for that. Um, and uh, I can't prove that to you right now, but there's a lot of work on the value of play beyond just the immediate. And I don't want to get all, you know, hoity-toity and, and academic on you, just except to say you know, play is a very valuable thing for human beings. Um, kids who are, you know, playing house and, and uh, one of them's the dad and he goes off to work and one of them's the mom and, she makes dinner and, uh, you know, they're pretending to be adults, even though they're just playing. That's actually setting in place some healthy patterns 
of marriage. That is, in a little way, helping program what they think a healthy marriage is for the future. Um, and playing at getting angry and then making up is helping them set up coping skills. And this is all kind of established or, or at least has been explored and, and understood. I'm not trying to force it on you. If you don't believe me, that's fine. I'm, I'm cool with that. Lots of people don't agree with me on things um, more than agree with me. So, you know, that's cool. I'm just saying that Halloween lets you play around with a lot of the darker concepts and horror movies in general, in addition to being entertaining, in addition to being fun, they expose you to things that are dark that it is worthwhile to subconsciously to, to sort of get out of the way, subconsciously to deal with them in a safe environment where you're not going to be killed when the killer comes at you, but you'll feel that vicarious fear. You'll feel that vicarious pain, but everything's good. Um, and uh, it helps you deal with your fear and maybe helps you realize you don't need to feel fear all the time. Um, you face something horrifying and it was okay. And it helps you... Uh, you know, diffuse that fear. People who can't face up to fake fears in a safe environment are people who are, in a lot of ways, going to have trouble facing up to fears in the real world. I think that's, you know, that's some speculation. Don't take that as like ironclad. Um, anyways, I'm just saying, I, I think that horror is healthy as long as you don't take it too far, but that's true of everything. You know, you can take anything too far and it'll become unhealthy. And there are some people who are unhealthy uh, in their minds that with they're exposed to things, you know, can get knocked off their, uh, knocked off the log and go off and become murderers. But they could have happened that because of a video game, um, a famous mass murderer got that because of pulp detective stories. Um, you know, literally magazines from the 50s about uh, police and real murder cases. That's what he went off and became a serial killer for. Um, we know that from interviews he had. Um, so anything can set these psychopaths off. It doesn't have to be horror. It's just... Anything can be unhealthy if you obsess about it too much, and the same is true for horror. But I think horror is horror movies are a good thing if not taken too far, and uh, and that's not a, a warning that I wouldn't apply to anything else in addition to horror. That's not a special warning that I give for horror. Um, and I like horror movies. I mean, I have a you know. I personally have a taste for gruesome monsters. So, um, so I like Hellraiser um, and other things. And if your tastes differ, that you're not cool with uh, gory horror movies, that's fine. That's cool too. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. That's just your tastes. There are a lot of 
uh, horror movies that are purely psychological, that are quite effective, that deal with the same things, but aren't explicit with gore, that aren't explicit with, you know, people being killed. And you can watch those too, and and they're great. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to withdraw my comment from earlier about people not being able to handle fear in the real world. That's probably wrong. That's just speculation. Um, I'm going to give the floor back to Doranal, but you see what I'm saying, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you make a really good point, and and it's it's nothing new. Uh, we we know that people, like you said, the, in the example of Playhouse, like we need this stuff, um, especially if we can laugh at it. And it doesn't have to be overtly funny like Evil did to it or overtly schlocky like uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Though that helps. Uh, uh, another example, uh, my, one of my favorites is Alien. Alien is uh, one of those movies where you feel, you can feel dread the whole time. But there's no, there's catharsis at the end. And even though, um, you know, the character Ripley may very well die out there floating in space, you know, the, the aliens been killed and uh, there's, there's hope and there's a chance. And it's not a downer of an ending, even if it isn't, you know, explicitly uh, a happy one. Um. It makes you terrified. It doesn't make you feel bad. So, And we forget in our sneering at horror nowadays that horror has been around for basically forever as far as folk tales go. I mean, uh, the original Cinderella had the, uh, had the stepsisters. Um, I just need to stop saying the letter S. Um, had the stepsisters cutting off their toes and their heels to fit their feet in uh, um, in the glass slipper to try and, you know, get, become married to the prince. Um, the Pied Piper of Hamelin leads the kids away, and uh, then they just disappear. The entire town loses all of its children. They just disappear. That's the bad guy winning. Um you know, and on and on. Ring Around the Rosie is about the Black Death and people dying. Um, they're describing all the symptoms of a dead body. Um, uh, the original Snow White, in order to wake her up, the or the original Sleeping Beauty, in order to wake her up, he doesn't uh, kiss her. He... Um, engages in intimate relations with her um that's a heck of a wake up yeah these these tales these folk tales um were horrifying and always had been um our our popular and i'm not saying this is a bad thing i'm not criticizing it our age is really tame where we have tvs and movie shows that are largely drained of these horrifying elements and we have set them aside um so you know it's okay that we have a month a year where we 
talk about the spookies and the and the goblins and the terrifying things. Um, and it's okay that we have a genre of movies uh, that is about horrifying things because it used to be all uh, or a lot of our um, a lot of our folk tales and myths and everything were about really horrifying uh, elements. Uh, the Mayanads from Greek myths, they fell upon uh, people who they met and tore them apart, limb from limb. You know, they met a couple of uh, musicians and demanded that the musicians play for them so they could dance. And when the musicians said, no, I don't think we want to do that, the Mayanads murdered them right there tore them to pieces, their blood littered the grass, their body parts were flung all around. That's horrifying, folks. I mean, you know, Greek plays, go. Oedipus sleeps with his mom and kills his dad. And these are legitimately horrifying things. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this. Well, uh, shall we? Shall we finish off with uh, more '80s schlock in a good way? Yeah, I have two movies I saw this week, at least. Um, I saw the unbearable weight of massive talent, uh, and I also saw Beastmaster. So Beastmaster, everybody told me to watch because they said it's such a great movie. And now that I've seen it for the first time ever, for the first time ever, I can see why uh, everybody who's seen it had and uh, loved it, loved it. Especially the people who told me to watch it. I can see why all of them loved it. So... I really, really enjoyed Beastmaster. It's a sword and sorcery movie um, about a kid who has unusual powers uh, to communicate with animals and see through their eyes, and they can see through his eyes. Um, and this is not a spoiler because it happens right at the beginning of the movie. So as, as always, my usual policy of if it happens in the first... You know, 10 minutes of a movie, it's not a spoiler. That's just setting things up. He is the son of the king, and he gets spirited away and is raised in a, in a, uh, by farmers, and then later comes back to wreak his revenge against the barbarians and such who did him wrong. Um, I'm not telling you whether or not he succeeded. I'm just telling you it's a great sword and sorcery movie. Um, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, it is obviously, uh, I would say it's worth your time to go see. I recommend Beastmaster. I'm not going to. There isn't a lot I can say about the movie that wouldn't be spoilers. But 
You should go see it. Great. Uh, it's it's one I've been meaning to watch for a long time. Uh, and I mean, I, I don't really mean that. It, it comes up every few years as a movie that I haven't seen. Uh, and uh, it's got a quite, quite a cult following, I guess. Um, it's just a fun movie. It is cheesy in places, but it's a lot of fun. It's And it's well worth your time if you just want to have a good time. It's not Schindler's List, so if you're looking for Schindler's List, you're going to be gravely disappointed. <laughs> I saw Schindler's List in high school. I was gravely disappointed. Um, so, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent uh, is a Nicolas Cage movie. Um, Nicolas Cage plays Nick Cage. A really successful actor who's having he plays himself. <laughs> That's what he plays in every movie. Um, he's a very successful actor who feels really, really um, uh, insecure, which I have heard is like the most realistic way you can play an actor. <laughs> and... Uh, He's going up for a role, and he loses the role because he spazzes out at the director. <gasps> oh, I, that's a no-no naughty word now. I'm sorry, guys. I was born in the 70s. I grew up in the 80s, so uh, I get an old man pass now. <laughs> I, I love getting an old man pass. I get to say things, and uh, you can't say anything about it because I'm an old man. It's awesome. Um, I am now grandfathered in. Uh, so anyways, um, he needs money. And the only money he can get money right now is because is by going to visit with this arms dealer in i want to say italy i'm pretty sure it's italy it might have been greece but i'm pretty sure it's italy um and going to a party and hanging out with him for a couple of days uh and he'll make two hundred fifty thousand dollars for hanging out with him and partying with him for a couple of days and he's just a big nick gage fan and huh. uh and then complications ensue. It's a fun movie. There is one part in the movie where it jumps ahead plot-wise. It's a jolt. It feels like there's some connecting tissue that's missing. And it may just be that there were some scenes there that didn't work, so they had to cut them. Um but it does make the plot not quite go smoothly in that spot. But it is a fun movie. They've got some jokes that really land, some jokes that don't quite land. So it's not a perfect movie, but it's a good movie. I'd give it like B plus. A good B plus. 
he how, can you even get lower than a B plus with Nick Cage in it? Oh, I've heard he's been in some awful movies. <laughs> I've never seen them. I personally have never seen an awful Nick Cage movie. Uh, but then again, I, I like Nick Cage. Uh, and I've seen a lot of his movies. You know, The Rock. Oh, Face Off was good. Um, I want to see his... I've heard that his uh, vampire movie from the 80s is pretty bad, but I want to see it anyway. Um, Do it. Breezing Arizona I saw so long ago, I can't even tell you. Uh, that would be 1989, I think, is when I saw it. And I liked it. It's really off kilter. It's really, you know, kind of a cult movie. It's definitely not for main, you know, like wide numbers of people, but I liked it. I don't know that I would like it now, but I liked it then. The crazy biker in it was worth the entrance. I've never seen Le Leaving Las Vegas. Just never really interested me. What else? What other Nick Cage movies should we think about? Uh, the one me. we just reviewed. Yeah, the the one at the... I want to say Five Nights at Freddy's, but it's not that... The... Yeah, it, it's Five Nights at Freddy's, but it's not Five Nights at Freddy's, but it's Five Nights at Freddy's. <laughs> right. Uh, or rather, One Night at Freddy's. Um, there's also Drive, Angry, and Mandy, which are two of his movies about cults. Uh, and I want to see both of those. They're recent ones. I haven't. But I do want to see those because they're Nick Cage movies. Um, yeah. Every, you know... It's fun to think about movies that like, what if Nick Cage were in this movie? Because maybe it'd be absolutely horrible, but maybe it would be awesome in a completely weird way. Chat's alive. We got a recommendation for Raising Arizona from Brian. I haven't seen it. Have you? I know you mentioned it. I, I know you mentioned it, but I wasn't sure if you had seen it or not. Yeah, I saw it in 1989, long time ago. Oh. Um, trying to think of. Uh, oh, I haven't seen his Ghost Riders. People said they were bad, but though I haven't seen those, and I've wanted to watch it. There's four Nick Cage movies I haven't seen that I uh, that I uh, you know want to see. Well, better get on it. He's had some serious movies he was good in. He had a one movie that he was a precog, that he could see things in the future. Um, and that was a good movie. I really liked that movie. Um, and I absolutely cannot remember what it was called. It didn't do very well in theaters, but I happen to like it a lot. Um so, I don't I don't know that one off the top of my head. Yeah. I used to work with a oh. guy who who had a thing for Nick Cage. He could probably list them all. 
And then there was, and I'm glad I didn't forget this before we leave the show. Then there was Con Air. <laughs> which I just adore. Con Air and The Rock are just like pillars of early 90s movies. They just, uh, man. That's, uh, that's where the classic meme comes from, right? Nick Cage tossing his hair. Yeah. Yes, it does. Love it. And uh, uh, it's just just two fabulous movies. I mean, The Rock is a pinnacle of action movie filmmaking. It is just so fabulous. It's got Sean Connery in it. There's a video you guys ought to look up on YouTube. Uh, it's an argument for why Sean Connery's character in The Rock is actually uh, the Sean Connery James Bond. Absolutely fascinating. And I think I've mentioned <laughs> it before, but but uh, the way the timelines line up and the things he says, I'm, I am completely convinced that whoever wrote the script at least built it so that you could believe that was true. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, I'm just saying that the person who wrote the script could very well have written the script so that that could be considered canon. Got it. And why not? Movies are supposed to be fun. Yeah. Stories are supposed to be fun. Like, it's just... Uh, I miss the time when most you could go to a theater, a fourplex, and all four movies that are playing were good movies, and you could just pick them. Yeah, last few times I was I was out and just man, I I feel like just taking in a movie this afternoon, whether it was just me or with my girlfriend or with a friend or my brother. Just there's no point in even driving by the building you know it's going to be garbage you're better off going back home making a bucket of pop you know bag of popcorn in the microwave and streaming something made in 1984 it's that bad so i don't know well, we weren't supposed to end on a downer no 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 oh that means i shouldn't stop well, let's talk about um, the peripheral, which I'm still watching, is still good. Um, and I'm going to tell you this. I was so drawn in by the first two episodes that I went and read the entire book um, in the last week. So, And then I started on the sequel. So it is a lot different from the book. But most of the changes that they made from the book and characters and plot are making it better. Um, and I'm still holding on to that surety that the series is going to fall off at some point and 
nosedive and crater. But so far, I've, I've enjoyed all three episodes. And I'm not saying the book is bad. It's not bad. Somebody, I think it was J.D. Cowan, I'm pretty sure it was J.D. Cowan, said that the cyberpunk writers actually were poisoned by, and I am not even paraphrasing, I'm just restating this in my own jargon, um, were poisoned by literary aspirations. You know, they were trying for lit thick. And at least in the case of William Gibson, that's absolutely true. Looking back on his books, even though I love them, and even though they were, uh, I like William Gibson as a writer. He is a talented writer, but he is very literary in his style. He's very lit thick in his style. If someone had gone back and an editor had gone back and worked with William Gibson and, and you know, beat that out of them, he could have been a legendary writer. He had so much stuff that could lend themselves well to um, just exciting settings, exciting, um, fast-paced, fun work. But instead, his works are these kind of stately, slow things with obscure references and you have to spend too much time digging through and piecing together references here with references there with trying to understand. And it's just really, really difficult. You never get direct references to anything. And so it's all, Uh, it's all hidden and illusions and uh, oracular, and it's all lit literary. And if he had made his stuff just a little bit clearer, his stuff is famous because it's... Um, because of the impact it had, and because everybody refers back to him as the father of cyberpunk, uh, and because he made a big splash in the 80s, uh, like Alan Moore did with uh, The Watchmen, with Watchmen, excuse me, and like Frank Miller did with The Dark Knight Returns. Um, it's kind of uh, deconstructionism of, of sci-fi and deconstructionism of, you know, American society and consumerism or whatever, all that left-wing, hardcore, anti-corporate politics, whatever. And so he's always going to be boosted up by people who share his politics. And so to an extent, that's kind of artificial. Um. Yes, his stuff happens to be good, but it's being boosted a lot of the times by people who don't care if it's good or not. They're just boosting it for the politics. And we know that because nowadays they're boosting a whole lot of stuff that is absolutely not good, provably not good, and they're still boosting it like it was the second coming of William Gibson, and it's 
just disastrously bad. So when you look under the hood of his novels, the ideas, the science fictional ideas, the street setting, the the shadow runness of it all lends itself to would more easily lend itself to what science fiction fantasy and horror are which is subgenres of adventure books right they're all subgenres of adventure books and cyberpunk could be and should be subgenres of adventure books instead of being um, literary fiction borrowing really cool trappings of really cool ideas of sci-fi. Um, and if William Gibson had been ready to be humble and write adventure stories, with the exact same science fictional elements, with the exact same political elements, but just tilt them towards adventure stories and not long, slow, literary fiction stories, he, he could have been on the level of us, uh, of anybody, as far as writing fiction. He didn't need to, he had the talent for it. He had the writing skill for it. Uh, and he just didn't have the desire to do it. Um, and that's also true of Bruce Sterling. Um, and I, I haven't looked at everybody else. I like, uh, Hardwired to John Williamson. In fact, I like John Williamson as an author. I started reading a whole bunch of other stuff he wrote, um, and I really like him as an author. I like the way he writes, which is why I started, after I read Hardwired, I started reading a bunch of other stuff he wrote. Um, so, but I haven't gone back and, and thought about the, his, the stuff he wrote in terms of whether it's lit thick or not. Um, but yeah, um, what cyberpunk really needs is what steampunk really needs, is what science fiction really needs, is writers who know they're adventure writers are fine with being adventure writers, but who have a strong moral code, a strong moral core as individuals, uh, have wisdom and can do what Larry Correa does, which is just let the wisdom come naturally and don't push things in the audience's faces. Uh, you know, his son of the black sword has a lot of deep wisdom embedded in it. That's not, that's not pushy. It doesn't get up in your face and start screaming in your ear about a message. It's just there. Uh, and I think that touches readers more um, than an obvious uh, 
propaganda would. I think propaganda is an evil as far as talent. I think you're, pardon the term, whoring out your talent if you make propaganda. Um, so, yeah, I... Uh, I think there is a lot to like about cyberpunk and a lot of the things that William did with his books are great. Um, especially the first like third of Neuromancer, it's absolute genius. And I'm convinced he built his entire career on the first third of Neuromancer and the last two thirds of the book fall off. They're not as good as that first third, which is just brilliant in its use of language. It's it's phenomenal. Um, the sky over the port was the color of a television tuned to a dead channel. Yep. That's just fabulous. Uh it describes gray skies perfectly and it ties the whole world into uh, this technological society and also this meaningless media sense. It's a great metaphor for the world. It's a great description of the sky. It's, it's brilliant. And it keeps that all up uh, till about, again, just over the one third mark. Um, and he's built his entire career on that because that was so startling and so amazing that the reputation he built and the readership he built on that um, and, and, you know he hasn't ever dropped off enough uh, to throw away that audience and anybody who starts to read William Gibson and starts with that book you're, you're hooked um, and it's never as good as that, but it's never really bad either. Um, the things that are wrong with William Gibson are not wrong with his descriptions and his prose. Um, so, yeah. So tying that back to not being a downer, D-dubs. Um, Peripheral is, is a great series so far. The three episodes that are out, I have had a lot of fun with. And uh, the changes for the TV show aren't perfect, but one, their compromise is necessary for the TV show. Um, just because it's a visual show. Uh, the actress in it used to be Hit Girl in the in those movies that were out, also starring Nick Cage, by the way. Um, and I can't remember her name right now. I'm so sorry. Um, in the book, she's uh, sent via telepresence to this uh, robotic body that she operates to do some things. In the book, it's a robotic body that's modeled after somebody else. And, you know, 
whatever, that's fine. Or it's a body that's modeled after somebody else. Whatever, that's fine. In the TV show, it's modeled to be, it look exactly the same as the actress, which is to say exactly the same as the character. Well, you understand that because they want the actress to be playing the character in, in both places as, you know, the organic character and as the character, you know, running this drone, this, the peripheral. Mm -hmm. So it's a change from the book, but you can see perfectly why they did it. Sure. Uh, they want the actress to be playing it in both places. So yeah, that's not a, you'd have to be a pretty picky person to not say, okay, that's a necessary, or at least it's a completely understandable compromise with the material. You know, that's not a big thing. Um, so there are, uh, there are compromises made for the sake of it being a, a visual medium instead of a book. And again, I talked about this, was it last week or the week before that? Uh, about comp compromises necessary with visual material versus printed material. And uh, so the, the plot for the TV show isn't perfect, but some of the things they do are just cooler. They're just neater. Um, in the TV show, there's a guy who's... Uh, uh, who's crippled he's crippled in the book and the tv show but the solution they have for him getting around in the tv show just looks and operates cooler i just like it more so i cut him slack i'm like you know that's my that's my theory about adapting material and changing material and i've said this before and i'll probably say it again so i want to reiterate it if you're going to be changing things around the only excuse is that you have to do it better. You don't have to do it perfectly. You just have to do it better. So if you're improve, literally improving from the book, and I think I talked about this like three or four weeks ago or five, which is popularization. People used to buy books and then popularize them because they made things that were better in movies. And nowadays, people buy the rights to books or whatever, and they depopularize them. They make crap. They wreck books and, you know, comics and whatever. But, uh, yeah, in addition to being cheaper and being a physical prop so that it doesn't look like this nasty cgi thing because in order to duplicate what they had in the book they'd have to do it in cgi um so it's a solid physical um vehicle and a solid physical props it just looks cooler it gives the character more um it gives the character more agency and it makes him cooler as a character because uh, in, instead of relying on some AI thing to shoot for him, he actually has a bullpup rifle he can pull out and shoot. So he comes off as much more badass. Um, he's, he's crippled. He's missing three limbs. He has one arm, uh, no legs, and, a, you know. So instead of using this 
scorpion tail thing with a tiny little gun on it that runs on AI. He actually uses a bullpup rifle to shoot. Um, and again, in the book, there's just these four guys that are end up dead in this vehicle. Nobody knows why. In the TV show, there's actually this big, huge firefight. It's just cooler. It's just more involving. It just, it's the difference between a lit Vic book and, you know, kind of a popularized action scene. Um, so, yeah, I, I really do think that that being lit thick has held back cyberpunk from, and you could have all the same politics, all the same background, all the same environmental warnings, all the same, you know, corporations are evil without the lit thick um, trappings to hold it back. And if they weren't getting so much praise for their politics, uh, I think that they might have seen that earlier in the 80s and, and gone with that. Anyways, the, the changes for the most part, not all of them, but for the most part have been for the better. And even though the uh, plot and stuff haven't been perfect so far, they've been good. I've enjoyed it. Um, so I'll, I'll, you know, keep on watching and, um, I didn't, you know, I don't normally do whatever a review after only seeing three episodes. This isn't a full review. It's just talking about comparing the book to the, to the TV show, but it's been fun. I've enjoyed it. It's on Amazon. So any of you who pay for Amazon prime for the shipping, for your boxes or whatever, uh, you get the TV shows and stuff for free. So you can. You can check it out if you want. Uh, and again, Samaritan was a lot of fun. Not perfect, but a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Don't watch Ring of Power on your life. I'm not going to sit here and ask whether it's better or worse than House of, of uh, the Dragon. I'm just telling you, don't watch either of them. They are... House of the Dragon is more morally repellent, but... Uh, they're both awful as TV shows, just taken on their own terms. Even if you laid that aside, so I'm done. I think we're done. I've been done, D Dubs, but it's always good to hear what the state of cyberpunk is nowadays. Dead and buried. But oh, uh, I think there's a a lot of cyberpunk or, or cyberpunk influenced works in the indie community that might bear looking at. Um, so uh, that is an area of the indies I have not been reading. I honestly, the big areas in the indies I read through were zombie novels, of course, and uh, lit, uh, excuse me, mill sci-fi. Um, and there's a specific term, uh, term for that that I've just forgotten. I've read a lot of Mill SF. There we go. Mill SF recently. Um, so I'm going to go. I have 
lead by cyberpunk works from the indies uh and i hope to get some more so they might may might actually be worth reading um William Gibson's Sprawl and Bridge trilogies are still good. I still really like them, but just be warned, the first book in both trilogies is the best book. And then the Neuromancer and Virtual Light, I think, are both great books. I reread them. Um, not every year. I don't know how people do that. I don't have enough time. Um, but I have reread them uh a few times. I think I've reread both books like four times. Um, and uh, the trilogies are worse than those two first books, but they never get really bad. And you have to read between the lines to finally figure out what's going on because it's a puzzle, which is just garbage. It's just a terrible idea. I hate it. I haven't read the Blue Ant trilogy, and uh, I'm reading the Jackpot trilogy, and the third book hasn't come out yet, but I don't expect that for another four years because the last one came out two years ago, and he's been doing like six-year gaps. So, But unlike a certain other author we could name, he does finish uh, trilogies, so... You know, he's done it three times. You got to give him that. I would have written all those down, but I don't read. You listed yes. a lot of stuff there in a few seconds. Yes. I, I went on a William Gibson binge uh, late last year and just read through uh, both of those trilogies again. And didn't do the Blue Ant, but I want to. Well, you're going to have to get reading for the rest of us. Um, speaking of, that was a good detour. It's, it is good to talk cyberpunk uh, and uh, stuff coming up. Um, do you want to talk about next week? I believe we have a guest signed up. Oh, no. He had to, he had to delay. Uh, and then he had to delay again because his, his delay ran right into the 12th. Oh, I see. Well, uh, no worries then. We'll, we'll be back sometime. Uh, next couple of weeks, so we we got two episodes until episode three hundred. Um, that's going to be really great. But uh, who knows what we'll talk about? I was hoping we'd talk about the, the five movies of uh, Freddy Krueger. Maybe <laughs> I won't lie; that sounds awful. Oh. Uh, <laughs> But let's sign off for this week uh, because that was fun and engaging and we are way over time. Uh, it's been awesome charting with you about all this stuff. I love going back to the classics, uh, especially the horror classics this month. It's been a really good month. And I hope everybody uh, in the chat has a few new uh, classics to put on their to watch lists and uh, enjoyed the conversation. I hope everybody listening later uh, also goes back and checks those out. Uh, but I am, I am also way over time myself, DW. So the rest of the show is yours. 
So what I wanted to talk about for the next hour is no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Got him. Um. Uh. I'm making a note, and you just dropped me in the middle of stuff. I'm writing down things I might want to watch. Uh, I had to get a new envelope because my old envelope is completely covered with scroll now. So I had to get a new envelope. Um, I had a great show today. I really enjoyed talking about the things we talked about. Uh, I enjoyed coming here and hanging out with uh, my uh, fellow host. Enjoyed coming here and uh, hanging out with you guys in the chat. Um, we had a lot of good movies we talked about today that uh, you can – Check out if you haven't checked out. Uh, recommendation for both Nightmare on Elm Street and Beastmaster um, and Nosferatu. Uh, recommendations on all of those. I would also give a recommendation for The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Uh, and I watched on the recommendation of several people on Twitter, so... A lot of people said, hey, this is a good movie. It's a lot better than you think it is based on the trailers. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll give it a watch. And they were right. It's a lot better than I thought it would be. I just wasn't really interested. But, you know, hey, it was actually a good movie. Um, so I want to thank everybody who came and listened live. I want to thank everybody who will listen later. This has been Geek Gap. Uh, we are here just about every Saturday at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. No, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Wow. I can do time. And mm. uh, you can catch us on the Apple iTunes store, on the Google Play store, and on SoundCloud.com. Just do a search for Geek Gab, or you can catch us on YouTube.com slash Geek That is YouTube.com slash geek cab we are signing out for today but don't you worry don't you fret we will be back